Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, Episode 31. Is everybody in the world going to die before someone finds the answer? Do I have to remind you that theory is the beginning of solution? What are we up against? Is it a dangerous thing? All I've ever known to be true is a lie. I didn't say it would be easy. I just said it would be the truth. Welcome to Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, where we break away from religious systems and man-made dogma to learn the Word of God from an independent Hebraic perspective. And now your host, the prophecy buff who tackles the tough stuff, Alexander Lawrence. Hello and shalom. This is Watchman Alexander. And this is Terry Arnold. Coming to you for more of a deep dive into the book of Genesis. I'm really enjoying this slow walk through the book of Genesis. So far, we're only in chapter 3, verse 19. We're going to start with verse 20 today. But before we get back to that, I want to talk to you for a minute about the serpent seed doctrine or theory, really a theory, which is one of these things that, that's floating around out there, and you might run into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's being preached in, in a lot of congregations, but there are uh, people online, you're probably going to come across at some point, who will push this theory. And before we get started on that, uh, let me give you a chance to excuse the children from the room or uh, put this on pause and save it for later because we are going to be talking about some things that are not necessarily okay for little ears. Um, nothing explicit, but we're going to be uh, discussing relations between adults. So if you need to come back to this later, that's fine. Good warning. Good warning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, don't, we don't want anybody getting scarred. <laughs> I'm already a little bit scarred, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah me too. Man. Seed doctor. <laughs> I, I am. I'm pretty. It's a deep scar right there. <laughs> okay, so so break just, it down. Break it down for our listeners as to what it's all about, like the core. Yeah, we showed our hand right there. Neither of us subscribes to this. Uh, <laughs> it does not hold up when you examine the surrounding scriptures. But the idea is that when the, the Nakash or the serpent beguiled Eve in the garden that it wasn't really about eating fruit. It was about having sexual relations. She didn't take and eat, literally. She slept with the serpent, and the uh, offspring of that was Cain. So it goes. Yeah, so first off, uh, even though neither of us really subscribes to this, I'll say this about myself. I'm, I'm still always open to inspection. There might be something that I'm missing in my evaluation as that, you know, that maybe it's clear to someone else and I, I don't get it. But nonetheless, like there are some pieces of this that uh, they require some finesse and some nuance to understand fully, because a lot of people, when they hear this particular doctrine, it leads into uh, condemning a, a lot of other doctrines that might be related to similar ideas. Um, as an example, we're, we're way, getting way ahead of ourselves here, but uh, Genesis 6 um, kind of introduces the idea of angelic beings or spirit spirit creatures or beings um, sleeping with women. And so a lot of people, because of their uh, 
or really hatred <laughs> towards the serpentine doctrine, serpentine seed doctrine. We'll go, go to Genesis 6 then and bring that in, bring that baggage that comes from this and say, well, that's impossible. You know, spiritual beings can't uh, take on flesh and sleep with women. Right. But there's a number of, of assumptions that are happening there. Uh, they really got to be uncovered, covered to say, hey, wait, let's not let's not go too far and then tell the Bible what it's saying rather than let the Bible tell us what it's trying to tell us, particularly that God can tell us and inform us what is actually true. And so, you know, with that same thing in mind, I, I recognize that if someone can then uh condemn another doctrine from like a Genesis six perspective that I, I'm not going to be super quick to fully condemn everything about even the serpentine seed. Although I, I again, I still, <laughs> I have a really tough, difficult time uh, believing it for like, like Alex said, a number of reasons. So I, one of them for me is that my understanding is that none of Cain's descendants made it across to post flood days. Uh, I could be wrong there as well. Like somehow uh, the seed of Cain is is like comes across through the women that are on the ark uh, as a lineage type idea. There's all kinds of things that could be possible that could prove me wrong here. But I I just in my spirit don't really feel <laughs> don't really feel that that is a valid doctrine just uh, based on things like that. Like it, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, using a euphemism so soon and early, because that's what this would be. Like a euphemism is a a phrase or term that someone uses to re, uh, talk about something that's normally inappropriate, but they talk about it in a, a more um, tongue-in-cheek kind of way using a euphemism term. Like an example of a euphemism might be uh, in the Bible, you use a phrase like covering your feet, which actually is talking about someone going to the bathroom, which is, you know, something you literally do <laughs> if, if it's the right one, like it, that's what you do. And so like in that way, uh, it's difficult for me to swallow a euphemism being used this early. And it's also difficult for me to even think it's not a tree that they're eating of that has fruit. Um, although I can see how someone can say, well, that's just an interpretation and, you know, my interpretation says otherwise. Yeah, so we're not going to disfellowship anybody over this, um, but this can lead to certain types of sin, which might be something you would get disfellowshipped for um, because it has often been used to support bigotry against certain groups. Yeah. Jews and blacks seem to be popular ones to, to be uh, marginalized by people who subscribe to this theory, but there's probably others. I mean, you could use it really to point to any group that you didn't like and say, oh, they're the descendants of Cain. They're evil. So that's one of the big problems with this. If you hate your brother, but you say, I love God, then you're a liar because how can you love your brother who you can see? I mean, sorry, how can you hate your brother whom you see and love God whom you do not see? Yeah. I believe that was in John. Yeah. Uh, first John. First John. Yeah. And, and adding to that, I mean, there are laws in the Torah in the first five books that explicitly talk about not mixing seed, for instance, uh, not planting two kinds of seed in a field or a vineyard. And so that's one of the reasons why this is so difficult to navigate is because there are things that the Torah does say about not mixing seed. 
which is also doubles for lineage. Like there's a there's a seed of man and, and a seed of woman. There's a seed of obviously of the serpent. Like uh, those concepts are still there. It's just how you apply them, how you approach them, right? Are we approaching them with a sense of just automatic condemnation because of someone's lineage? Are we approaching them from a sense of automatic disfellowship because of some, someone's lineage? Um, there are legitimate, uh, what's, I guess, restrictions that might come from your lineage, right? Uh, you know, that that is something that is a real that's a that's a reality in the Bible. Um, one of the ones that Alex and I talked offline about was uh, the prohibition of Moabite men from entering into uh, either some would say service. Others might say just the whole assembly or congregation of Adonai, our Lord, um, that that is explicitly in there. And then when we get into that, like even rabbis, they they. They have different views as to what that means. It has phrases in there like uh, not until the 10th generation. Um, you know, does that mean you have to go that that many before people can be accepted? There, there's so many things there. And then there's the gender piece of it. Um, some explicitly say it that command that uh, prohibition is specifically for Moabite men. Um, and I'm trying to remember exactly where this was. I believe it's in Deuteronomy, if I'm not mistaken where uh, that prohibition is made. And, and that's just one of many that are in there. So there are prohibitions against different things, but I think it might be better to talk about a difference in roles or uh, closeness or um, a difference in sanctification that comes to place oftentimes from these things, right? Like, so in the same way, we have a God who says the Levites are the ones that he's chosen to approach his, uh, to approach the Holy of Holies, like and specifically not just any Levites, but descendants of Aaron were the ones who were allowed to do that. It's not that the other people of Israel were um, less than in some way. In fact, uh, the whole role of the Levites was derived from the firstborn of all of Israel being redeemed. And there was a one-to-one, uh, a one-to-one trade actually for the Levites with the firstborn of all of the tribes of Israel. So there's always that connection there. But once God says this group can do this thing, that it's the word of God that makes that happen. And so we ought not, uh, you know, be presumptuous either and say, well, all of us are just as good as the other for every, any and every task. Um, right. But all of the Israelites could still mix with one another. The Aaronic descendants were still mixing with any of the other Israelites that they so desired. Um, they just had different roles, different jobs. In terms of talking about genetic combinations there, uh, nothing was prohibited. Right. That really begs the question. if mixing of kinds was involved in this Garden of Eden event. Why isn't it a bigger deal? Why isn't the rest of Genesis pointing to that and treating it as a, a really serious thing? Because we are told not to mix different types of animals or kinds, I should say, of animals, not different yeah. kinds of plants together. We're not supposed to mix in a lot of different ways. There are serious repercussions to to doing that kind of thing, combining two kinds that are diverse and are meant to remain diverse. But of course, 
human beings are human beings and any two human beings from, from different lineages can mix and produce offspring. So why isn't Genesis saying, telling us, warning us about the descendants of Cain and exactly who those are and, and how we should be keeping ourselves separate and, and watching out for those people? Because if they really did come from the Nakash, then God should be telling us, steer clear. Yeah. And, and so that, that's where we can back up a little bit to stuff we have covered, right? We talked a little bit about, you know, why is the tree of knowledge of good and evil so bad? And the idea we talked about there was that it's good and bad, right? That that's the true mixing of seed that causes issue, right? It's the, the, the mixing of the holy with the common, the good with the bad together as though they're the same. And what that should tell us is, yes, distinctions are important, particularly, though, in relationship to righteousness versus that which is evil. And so certainly then when we come to this serpentine seed uh, theory or idea, right, um, we have we would have then from the idea that what's being presented is that that the seed of the woman was mixed with the serpent seed, right? So we have a good, you know, the seed of the woman and the bad, the seed of the serpent. And from a figurative standpoint, like we can understand why that jives very well. I just don't know that that necessarily necessitates that there also had to be a, uh, a literal standpoint in which it's talking about sexual relations and mixing of seed. Um, that's, that's one of the pieces of why this is difficult for me personally to navigate. Cause I'm like, I can see, uh, some good points that can be drawn from looking at it figuratively. Um, I just don't know that how fruitful it would be to talk about it from the literal. And it, it, and it's also important here to say that there's actually more than one literal interpretation, even when you present those facts, like, uh, it's not like there's only only exists ever one literal interpretation of a text. Um, there actually can be multiple literal <laughs> interpretations with the same words and rearranged in different ways. So uh, that's one of the many sets of complications I know I personally come to when I try to hash this out. Well, let's get down to brass tacks with it. The word that's used in Genesis 3.13 is nashah. Uh, which the King James translates as beguiled, others translate as deceived. This word nasha is used elsewhere in the Old Testament several times. I think maybe almost 20 times. And I didn't find any instances in which that word has any connotation, has any relation at all with sexuality. Now, I'm, I'm thinking what's coming to mind right now and, and Maybe I don't know if we have time to delve that deep into this, but I think of the children of Israel, the sons, had a sister named Dinah or Dinah, right? And she got effectively uh, beguiled by, oh, wow, the, the, the name Shechem, right? The son Shechem. Now, what I'm interested in learning what words are used in describing that whole instance, because it seemed like if ever there was a time where that might be an appropriate way to talk about that and to make a connection, it would be there. Are you familiar with any of the words that are used in regards to Shechem? No. 
the word when I did a search, Nashaw did not come up there. I'm pretty sure it didn't. Um, I found it in other places like Second Kings, Jeremiah 29.8. Yahweh's giving a warning to somebody. And uh, it's about prophets and Judah. And uh, so it would be very, very strange if what was being said there is don't let the prophets of Judah who are false prophets sexually seduce you. There's a number of instances like that where it just doesn't fit the, the content at all to be talking about anything sexual. Well, that, that's interesting, though, because when you when you think about that, right, um, what are we warned against when you talk, you come to the book of Revelation and you start with the seven churches? Um, like when it warns us about, uh, you know, when you have the two pictures that are prominent there in the seven churches of the evil side of things, when he's dealing with it, when Jesus is dealing with the, the seven churches, you have the picture of Jezebel, right? Who was, um, you, a, a sorceress and also a seductive woman, right? As we saw in her, her death, like that's what she tried to do when Jehu came through. Um, but also you had Balaam, and that was his deception, was specifically the trick into sexual sin and to ensnare the people of Israel with that. And those two things are, are obviously something that the Lord our God hates. And Jesus tells us multiple times to be warned of that, that um, there is like seduction in a, in a very broad sense does actually have that sexual undertone in it. Like just when you talk about the word seduce. Yeah. When, when it's, when you're speaking of it thematically, absolutely. Sexual immorality involves deception. It involves being beguiled um, because you wouldn't participate in those things if you weren't deceived in some way. Um, but specifically with the usage of the word Shah in scripture, I'm not seeing anywhere that it's used in that context of yeah. sexual seduction. That is uh, fair enough. In fact, in, in uh, 2 Kings 19, somebody tells Hezekiah to be careful not to be beguiled by Yahweh. <laughs> that would be weird if there was some sort of sexual connotation there. So. I, think, I think weird is probably not the best word for that, but yeah, you were right. <laughs> Hold it right there, Watchman. Get a cup of tea. It's time for Everything Under the Sun when we take three minutes to hear from the Watchman's wife, Amanda Lawrence. Today's Everything Under the Sun is brought to you by The Watchman. And I know what you're thinking. Watchman's wife, aren't they all brought to you by The Watchman? Well, yes, but this past weekend, he said something to me that really, really resonated. And I actually did turn to him and say, you know, there isn't everything under the sun in that. We ran across to a river that's not too far from our house to do a tash leak, where we throw in stones to signify getting rid of sin areas in our life. While we were there, we thought it would be a good time to introduce Ezra to the water. So far, his only water experience has been getting a bath, which is a 50-50 toss-up as to whether or not he likes it, and a very small splash pad. And in my mind, I was going to sit with him in about two inches of water and let him splash around and get acclimated to it. The watchman had another idea. 
he picked up our baby boy and waded in up to about his waist and then just plopped Ezra right down in the middle of it. He was screaming. Ezra, not the watchman. He was decidedly unhappy with the change that he had just experienced. It was cold and it was wet and it was all around him and it was just a whole lot. And I suggested to the watchman that I was going to kind of slowly introduce him to it. And the watchman said, just because it's different doesn't mean it's bad. He'll get used to it. And after about a minute or so, he did. Ezra settled down and was quite content and happy for a while after that. The watchman followed up by saying he just had to stay in it for a little bit to see that it wasn't that bad. I feel like you can probably tell where I'm going with this. And the great thing is it probably looks different to everyone who's listening to this. I think we all have an area where we feel like we've just been thrown into something and we have to rely on God and figure it out. I want to focus on doing that. I want to just jump wholeheartedly into something instead of tiptoeing my way in. The result is going to be the same and it might be scarier at first, but really it's going to save a lot of time. If I just wade straight into the figurative water, I don't have to recognize that my, ooh, my toes are cold and then my ankles are cold and then my knees are cold and so on. It's just everything gets cold all at once and then all at once I acclimate. While I'm at the same job, I moved into a different role last week. I work with survivors of sex trafficking and as you can imagine, that comes with a lot of ups and downs. Sometimes I have to do trainings where I'm hearing about impossibly difficult situations and I get to see survivors make choices. And for a long time, a lot of them didn't have them. So just having the opportunity to make a choice is a big deal, but sometimes they choose incorrectly and there are ramifications. All of this to say my first week was a lot. I definitely feel like I got thrown out into the water instead of just gradually walking in and I do feel better for it. I feel like I got a crash course all at once and that if I made it through this week, I will be that much more prepared. I just wanted to encourage you. Our little baby was fine when he was carried into the water. He was held. He was safe the entire time. And that's such a good image for me to hold on to. I'm not comparing Watchmen to Yahweh. However, the correlation is similar in that when I go into a hard thing and when my feet can't touch the bottom and if I'm released, I will absolutely sink. I know who holds me and I know that I'm safe and I am definitely going to scream and cry for a little bit and I need to just relax and know who has me. What is right in front of you that you need to jump into? Is there a step that you can take this week to move forward towards that? because tiptoeing is just going to waste you a lot of time. As always, you can reach me at thewatchmanswife at gmail.com. So that's, you know, just the word study part of it. Um, but the thing that really, I think, destroys the case for the serpent seed is chapter four, um, because again, at the beginning of Genesis chapter four, we're told that Adam knew Eve, his wife, knew, of course, means had sexual relations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. 
So she didn't bear Cain until after Adam knew her. And this causes some people to actually incorporate into their serpent seed theory that uh, Adam was lying with Eve at the same time that the serpent was. So he turns it into a group thing, which is really weird. But the problem with that is still that Eve says, I got a man with the help of Yahweh. So if Yahweh is helping, then clearly there was not some sort of group intercourse going on in the garden. So that kills it. Cain came from Adam lying with Eve, point blank. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and even with that, once you add Adonai's name in here, which by the way, like this is like the first time someone's using his name directly, right? Uh, it's, 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 it's Eve of all people who calls him uh, by that on the first time in your whole Bible, right? And so this is a momentous occasion um, and to taint it with the idea that really even what we're reading, either English or Hebrew, that it's, it's really some secret thing that's underneath it that's happening that you're just you're just not hip to what's going on right there. Um, that, that idea, I mean, it's disturbing to me, but the fact that I'm disturbed by something shouldn't in and of itself mean something. Nevertheless, it, it is disturbing and I just don't see how it's valuable. Yeah. Since we don't know exactly who came out of that, even if it was true, uh, we have no way of knowing who's from Cain and who's not. No, one of Noah's son's wives had to have had the DNA from the serpent, if the theory is true, because nobody survived the flood except those who were on board the ark. Right. Genesis will, will read later says, all flesh that had breath in its nostrils died other than those who were on board the ark. And um, I think it's Peter or James, I can't remember who, but uh, New Testament epistles also say only eight were saved. That being the case, it had to have been passed through one of Noah's son's wives. And that's very close to being true because the watchers, we'll talk about this later, but I'm about 99% sure that the watchers DNA, not their spirit, but just the genetic code for gigantism passed down through Ham's wife. But again, that was allowed to happen. God didn't stop it. So if the serpent's seed is really that big of an issue and it was it survived through one of those wives. Why are we not um, told which lineage? Why are we not? I mean, we're told about the, the lineage of Canaan and how it's cursed and who came from Canaan, but we're not told anything about those who came from Cain. It just seems like they were wiped out. Uh, the book of Enoch says something interesting when Enoch visits the underworld, visits Sheol, and he sees in one of the compartments of paradise there, um, the righteous soul of Abel, who was crying out to the Lord from there. And he asks the angel who's, who's taking him around, um, who is this? You know, and why is he petitioning? And the angel tells him, oh, that is Abel. And he is continually petitioning God to cut off the, the line of Cain until uh, God does so. He will continue to cry out for justice. Um, so it would seem to me, now it doesn't say explicitly, but it would seem to me that God answered that prayer and brought that justice, wiping out the line of Cain at the time of the flood. Perhaps. But then um, 
you know, if, if we were to challenge that, right, we'd look at Hebrews chapter 11 and how it talks about how the righteous blood of Abel still cries out. So that would be much later than the flood and would suggest that that justice, if you will, has not been served yet. Um, and, and we know that, you know, it's not only Abel's blood that cries out for that kind of justice. We see that same picture when we look in Revelation with, I believe it's the fifth seal and the blood crying out, the souls under the altar crying out for God to do that justice. And so um, like I can suddenly get down with the idea of Cain, uh, some of Cain's lineage passing down with the women. Um, I guess my main cautions are against this automatic condemnation hanging over people with a specific lineage. Uh, we'd have to reject that idea because if any of the linea- the DNA of Cain, if you will, passes down through the women, then we all are all like automatically just done, right? Um, and even with that, like I'm kind of talking around in circles here, just thinking through this, but I mean, we do have doctrines that sound similar to that, right? So when we talk about receiving the sin of Adam, the first Adam, Right. We do have this inheriting of a dead spirit that happens. So maybe it's not so outlandish after all, from that perspective. Um, I think the, the the issue then to add another flavor would be uh, when we start to say that because of someone's lineage, they cannot be redeemed. Um, redeemed by the second Adam, Yeshua, who we need to understand like his blood when, when it cleanses, when it cleanses us, I believe that there's like another level of that to where he can actually fix quote unquote our DNA because uh, bigger proponents of the serpentine seed doctrine will even say that your DNA literally is changed. It's altered to be more like a serpent's uh, when you have this passed down. So if that were the case, Jesus is the answer for that also. And blessed be Yeshua because he is our salvation. He is able to deliver us from every kind of wickedness that there is. As long as we are willing, we are willing to go with them and to say yes. Right. And so all of this stuff we're talking about, that's why I don't disfellowship with someone who believes in the serpentine seed doctrine is because for me, that does not negate the incredible, all-powerful, all-authority-granted cleansing blood of Jesus Christ to dominate even in that scenario. Well, amen to that. Yeah, and we see in the book of Revelation that the great innumerable crowd before the throne will be made up of people from every tribe, yeah. every tongue, every nation. Uh, nobody is excluded. And uh, Paul, likewise, in his epistles, talks about the fact that there are no differences between the ethnicities anymore. There's no division, uh, no separation between Greek or Gentile, I'm sorry, uh, Gentile or Jew, or even between different classes of people in society and everybody is, is welcomed in. Um, that's the message of the gospel. That's what Yeshua said, uh, go out to all of the nations um, because God is, is requiring all of them to repent now. He wants um, all of them brought in to the kingdom. It's not just for the physical descendants of 
Abraham anymore. Well, it never really was. I shouldn't say anymore, <laughs> but it, it's just a much different emphasis now. Um, but it's always been a mixed multitude, even from the beginning of Israel, which is beautiful, you know, and that's how God's always operated. That's how he's going to operate until the end. The only thing that we ever see that would exclude a group of people from being able to repent and enter the kingdom is the mark of the beast. Uh, we're told if you take the mark, that's it. But that's going to have to be a very, very clear decision that you are entering a covenant with the one that we call the Antichrist or, or the man of perdition, as the scripture usually calls him, the man of lawlessness. You are entering into covenant with him by taking that mark. It's not going to be related to, um, you know, things that are, are lesser than that or things that you have no control over as in who you were born to, you know, what DNA is passed down to you. Um, it has to be a conscious decision to be on the enemy's side. Um, but that's the only thing I can think of that says you're no longer redeemable. Yeah. I mean, um, and, and I think of that as being synonymous in many ways uh, to what Jesus said when he, when he said that the only sin that can't be forgiven is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, right? This blasphemy thing. This is um, basically shunning or degrading the name of God himself. And that act of taking on the mark of the beast, that is basically stamping someone or something else's name over in, in a in opposition to God. And so it's like the ultimate embodiment of that, that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I think a lot of people have lots of different ideas of what that's about, but at the end of the day, that's, that's accepting the serpent seed into your heart as opposed to the seed of Adonai in your heart being planted, which is the word of God, which is Yeshua. Okay. Enough of that talk about serpent seed stuff. Let's you know, go we, you know we out of time now, right? <laughs> uh, of course we are. Of course. Um, let's just try and talk through the end of chapter three. Let's at least get started on chapter four. Yes, sir. I know we touched on it already in our discussion, but uh, go back to verse 20 in Genesis three. And we read that the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Uh, so that word Eve in the English is quite different than what it is in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's related to the Hebrew word for life, Chaya. Um, and I'm sure Terry probably has some insight into that. What's the from yeah, so, what's the perspective from our resident Hebrew expert? <laughs> oh, man, expert is much too big a word for me. <laughs> Um, so just, just for our listeners, like my Hebrew knowledge is limited to that of like a probably kindergartner or first grade reading level. So with that said, um, okay, you're our resident acolyte. Yeah, there we go. Um, so with that said, like exactly like you're saying there, Alex, it's, it's related to the word living, which we get, right. We get from the thing because the last place that it ends is she's the mother of all living, which is high. So um, the feminine form, because in in Hebrew, there's both a, a masculine and feminine form of pretty much every noun uh, that you can think of. They have 
that feminine form be Eve, so Chava, and then Chai. So it's the same uh, same letter Chet, which is at the beginning of her name, as well as life. Um, and the switching, the only other difference really is that uh, that Av ending and the the Yod being changed to a Vav, which those two get changed and swapped a lot to uh, denote kind of, in this case, a gender change. So from, uh, if you were to translate like her name, it would be life word, like the, the what do you call it, suffix, the suffix of, of word, W-A-R-D. It'd be like she's towards life. She's for life or pro-life, you might even say. Um, and then the word chai is just living or life. It's just the word life, um, together. So literally her name is pro-life. Toward life, pro-life. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, um, thank goodness for women. (laughs) (laughs) And then we read that Yahweh made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And that's very interesting to me because, and, and this is uh, by no means a, a unique statement I'm about to make. I've heard it from many, many different sectors, but the fact that he made hides to cover them is very suggestive of the covering that we now receive by the blood of the lamb. So the lamb was slaughtered in order that we could go on and, and continue to have life. Um, so God may have indeed sacrificed a lamb he may have killed a lamb there in the garden in order to cover adam and eve which would be a prophetic type but it doesn't specifically say what animal the skin came from um so we're left to guess at that but it would be interesting if it was a lamb or a sheep yeah and there's like an intimate uh connection here with baptism um galatians 3 verse 27 talks about for all of you who were baptized into christ have clothed yourselves with christ so this is a picture of, you know, Christ, us being clothed in Christ is a forgiveness of sins in a sort, because what what are we reaching here? We're talking about the end of uh, Adam and Eve's sin and what happens as a result of that. And one of those results is that they have to be clothed in a sacrifice in order to be able to continue forward with their lives. It's so great that God's still taking care of them after they sinned. Um, there's consequences, but he's also providing for them and looking after them. Yeah. Um, I've also heard it said that the garment of skin here may be a dual meaning, and it may also be referring to the flesh that covers a phallus, the foreskin, and also the hymen in the woman. And that Ooh, those that's... were not there before they left the garden, that uh, God it, that put those in them. Um, as well as clothing them with with literal hide. Have you that ever heard that is before? interesting. No, that's the first time I've ever heard that. I was going to talk about something more boring, like you know the fact that it actually says tunic of skin, the same kind of word that's used for the priestly garments. Uh, but yeah, that's interesting too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would you know, there's oftentimes there's multiple meanings in these things, so I can't dismiss that. Um, it is very interesting to me that the foreskin has to be removed by God's command. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the male who is the authority figure removes the female's covering of skin in yeah. her when they consummate after marriage. So that is profound. 
Um, also, you said we weren't going to be explicit, but you kind of did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to use medical terminology here as much as I can. Good job. Good job, sir. Um, another thing, like, so there's just so much rich here. Like, we're not going to get to everything. And we've already went over time. But I'm going to share this anyway, because it's good. Um, the word for skin um, so it's ayin, vav, resh is this word for skin, the, the letters for skin there. When you change that, like it's actually a homonym, which is, this means like it sounds the same, right? Uh, a homonym with the word for light. It's one of the ways which uh, people have suggested, especially rabbis have suggested that they were clothed in light before with their skin and they got downgraded to uh, this other kind of skin, like the kind that skin that we look down and see. And also right while we're there, judge off of, right. We talked about racism and how it's like judging people on the base of their skin color or their uh, race. And we've talked a little bit about heritage and lineage, like all of that comes again from that fallenness because in the beginning we were intended to all be clothed in light, which is Aleph. Um, and maybe I think in some cases it has a vibe and then resh. So it's basically just a changing of the letter to do that downgrade from the kind of skin that's so vulnerable that we see that Paul goes on to say, you can't inherit the kingdom of God, flesh and blood wise, right? To the spiritual light and skin that we would have had otherwise. Oh, that's very interesting. The similarity of those words. Yeah. Uh, Hebrew is amazing. I gotta learn Hebrew. <laughs> I'm not content to just look it up with study tools. I got to learn it. So I, I see those things. All right. So, we're, you know, we are over time and uh, I wanted to keep these a little bit shorter. So we'll have to talk about the Kerub with the flaming sword next time. And also I wanted to just tease you about the fact that in verse 20, excuse me, 22, Yahweh says, behold, the man has become like one of us, <laughs> knowing good and evil. Uh, who is the us? We're going to talk more about that when we get to the story of the Tower of Babel. Oh, man. You have you go into the heavy stuff already. I guess we stay <laughs> on heavy stuff, so. What I mean, this is loaded with it. That, that's why <laughs> we're here. I mean, I, I take it like that, so it's fine. All right, guys. Thanks so much for being with us. Until next time, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Shalom to all. Shalom to all.